What was originally scheduled to be a 30-minute interview <laughs> turned into an hour-and-a-half conversation with Chicago's Bill Champlin. My conversation with Bill Champlin could have easily gone for another hour. I mean, we spent the time talking about family, his early musical influences, his personal projects, including his band, The Sons of Champlin, um, his time with Chicago, as well as changes within the music industry. I mean, his musical legacy literally spans his entire lifetime. Well, you know, my mom was a writer. Uh, she was a songwriter, and she she was she was crazier than a junkyard dog. But she was <laughs> she was a good, a pretty good songwriter. And she, when I was a little baby, she put me in a playpen and put me under the piano, played piano all day. Uh, so I, I kind of grew up with music just pounding at the top of my head. And his professional legacy spans well over five decades, starting with a, a strong foundation and respect for R and B. I really, I really dug straight ahead pop music until i until i heard the you know james brown and the r&b thing and I, you know i lived in marin county which is right across the bay from oakland which is you know everybody knows oakland and that's where tower power mm -hmm. came from a lot of really cool stuff came out of there so the, there was a there was a radio station called uh, KDIA. It used to have their their trans, transmitter was right at the at the uh, uh, the Bay Bridge at the beginning of the Bay Bridge on the Oakland side, and uh, they had fifty thousand watts of funk. <laughs> you know? In 1978, following the death of their guitarist Terry Kath, Chicago would make an attempt to recruit Bill, but at the time he just didn't feel like he was the right guy. Right after Terry was uh, had passed away. I mean, like almost the next day, I got a call because I was—I had the same manager, and I got a call, and and I didn't, you know, say, "Hey, you want to, you want to do this?" And I said, "I play guitar, but you know, and I play one solo. After that, it's the same solo. I, I'm not that good a guitar player, especially to fill Terry Cash shoes." Terry Kath was Jimi Hendrix's favorite guitar player. Finally, in 1981, Champlin would end up joining Chicago. And while the paired vocals of Peter Cetera and Terry Kath really did create a special kind of vibe, it would also become uh, quickly clear that when Bill and Peter Cetera combined vocals, some special magic happened. Uh, and Peter and I, we were knocking each other out. When we hit the microphone together, it was like, whoa how about this for a blend yeah so that's kind of where uh, that's kind of where danny danny said well we gotta get bill in the band and then he went you know what do you play i said i play keys and guitar uh you know not a lot of guitar but i play enough to cover parts without a doubt to cover any part that's there i can I, if I don't know it today, I'll know it tomorrow. I'm that guy. You know, I live in the woodshed mostly. Yep. And uh, 
And uh, so, he, you know, he, he, he sort of talked the rest of the guys into it. And I went and met with them and they all, we all kind of got along. Everything was fine. So I got the gig. And as a result, Bill would spend the next 28 years with Chicago, lending his vocals to a number of hit songs. And, I, you know, I figured I'd give it four or five years, maybe. Four or five days, maybe, you know. But I just, well, I'm going to go with this until it really feels wrong. And, you know, after a little while, I got, you know, caught up in... Uh, you know, a, you know, sang, sang a hit or two. Now, anyone who has spent time in a band at any level has quickly learned that there are band politics and there are some relationships that just mix like oil and water. And Bill shared with me that much of his time in Chicago, he actually felt like there was a target on his back. Because I know one of the guys in the band just didn't want me in there for the minute I was. Really? So I, I did 28 years with a bullseye on my back. You know what I mean? Wow. That's, that's, that's makes it tough. Yeah. It's just uncomfortable all the time. You know I mean? I, at one point I was just shaking all the time. I said, well, who's going to, who's going to tag me today? What are they going to hit me for today? <laughs> You know, yeah. what's it going to be today? But after nearly three decades, Bill felt that it was time to return to the band that he'd actually started in 1965, a band that he had put on hold during his tenure with Chicago called the Sons of Champlin, or more simply, the Sons. You gotta get your money in the if you ain't taking care of business, this you must expect. Love gets All right, now here's an interesting fun fact about the Sons. While they were preparing for the release of their debut album back in 1969, they would actually run into a kind of a issue that would result in the, a delay of the release due to, uh, unbeknownst to the band, profanity being found on their album cover. We did a, a kind of a jam cover. A lot of people with colored pencils and pens put together the cover and somebody wrote a bad, you know, uh, dirty word on it. So we had to pull back all of our records, hire people to, to cross out the word re-shrink wrap them and put them out again so we missed wow. that how many how many yeah. how many albums had to be crossed out uh i don't know i think they did about at least five thousand not, if not oh, wow. ten something wow. like that so as the saying goes timing is everything and considering that chicago was releasing their debut album at the same time the suns were yeah i'm left wondering if the delay in the suns album created a change in fortunes for both bands but the, the first album loosened up naturally was a double album. We did a deal with Capitol. They said, "We'll just get paid for the one out." And uh, and and you know, obviously, and Chicago did the same thing, and they were both released in the same month. But uh, some little lady in Atlanta, her son bought the record, and she just looked, sort of looked at the covers and went, "Ah, this artwork is great." And she saw the dirty word and, and complained to Capitol, and you know, the 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 poo poo was in the fan as of that moment. You know, so well. You know, I mean, they've always said that the release date's very important, and we just screwed it up. And at that point in the game, I think Chicago's record was started to, started to fly. Having the opportunity to talk with Bill really was a lot of fun. I mean, and there's a reason why uh, our conversation went well beyond the, the actual scheduled time. I mean, we're talking about somebody who's been a participant in the music industry from some of the earliest days of, uh, of rock, which means there's an opportunity for me to get some firsthand insights from somebody who was there. I mean, for me, R&B was the, was the whole thing. And that's, that's kind of what I was trying to write. 
And then, you know, at some point in the game, I was listening, you know, I mean, I was, you know, Wilson Pickett fan, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody actually turned, they got me drunk enough to sit down and listen to Bob Dylan and, and some of the Beatles stuff. And I went, whoa, here's some decent lyrics. Here's some lyrics that are saying something other than, baby, I'm a man and a half, you know, which is pretty much the basic song of almost R&B record, almost all R&B records at that time. So I was kind of going, well, why don't we, why don't I write the R&B feel, but let me write some words over it that mean something. Because we were all taking acid at the time, and we were, you know, kind of studying uh, religions of different kinds. and Not that, not as a band, but I was, you know, I was paying attention. And it would end up being that, that understanding, that deep connection with R&B, combined with the ability to write lyrics that actually say something, that would enable Bill to be a co-writer on Earth, Wind & Fire's second Largest hit. For a while, to love was all we could do. We were young and we knew it What was kind of cool about it is that, you know, I write a lot of pre-choruses. You know, we call them letter B. You know, we're gonna go. We're gonna go. Letter A is the the verse, and letter B is the way to get to the chorus, and then letter C is the chorus. Well, I write a lot of letter Bs, but this time the letter B, a lot of people thought was the chorus. You know that section, something happened along mm-hmm. the way. That section there, people thought it was a chorus, and then along came the, oh, after the after along comes that, and then you realize this song's got two choruses. He would also co-write, along with Steve Lukather and Jay Graydon, George Benson's number one hit song, Turn Your Love Around, for which they'd win a Grammy. Turn your love around. Don't you turn me down. And one more fun fact about Bill that you may not have known, but if you're a fan of crime dramas from, say, the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s, there's a high probability that you uh, heard his voice on the theme song to the TV series In the Heat of the Night. And I'm happy to share that Bill has remained quite active in a number of projects, including this year teaming up once again with guitarist Jay Graydon for a collaboration with Norwegian singer-songwriter Ole Beru. I just did a guest appearance on, on an art, with an artist who's basically kind of a crossover West Coast uh, Christian artist named Ole Borut, B-O-R-U-D. And he's he's a monster. I've been a fan of his for a couple of years. And he finally got in touch with me and said, can I get you to sing on this record with me? It was a song called uh, Find a Way. It's a really cool record. There's a, and, uh, and he got uh, Michael O'Mardian, who was the you know piano player and producer for Christopher Cross, to play piano on it. And he got me to, to sing a duet with him. Bill also has two more projects, keeping him pretty busy. One which would actually see him pair back up with fellow Chicago bandmate Jason Sheff. Right. 
than Bill Champlin and Wonderground, which would also feature his wife Tamara and friend Gary Falcone. Bill's current projects, his, his new material is as strong as anything that he'd ever put out there. And there's actually quite a bit of variety there. So depending on what your style is, I invite you to check it out and give it a listen. And over the past year, you know, I've got a growing playlist of artists that, that you could have expected to hear on mainstream radio in the 70s and 80s who are putting out new material, new albums right now. It's just for whatever reason, they're not getting the push. And uh, I shared this thought with Bill to get his feedback. Yeah, it's, yeah, I've I've been trying to keep up with a lot of the albums that have been coming out from let's just say artists that that were really you know the peak of the mainstream seventies eighties, and it's yeah. disappointing. Just uh, the push isn't there. You know, you've got to really dig to stay up with it. And I, I talked if about you're not pushing yourself. It ain't gonna happen. And I've always been kind of I don't, you know I, I hate self-promotion it just feels smarmy to me somehow but it's got to be done people have to have to know that you've got something available i mean i did what i could i, I was you know mail ordering uh cds and everything and and uh, you know we, i think we broke even on the record and uh, but i got really good players and i got mark uh russo the sax player with the doobie brothers he's he sat in on uh, two or three tunes uh a handful of good players andreas carlson is a Really great Swedish writer. He wrote a lot of the Backstreet Boys and and uh, In Sync and Britney and those kind. Of, he was working with Max Martin over there, and uh, and and he's an old pal of mine. So he's on the record. I got I got a handful of really cool people on the record. But it's mostly me. I'm just you know I play guitar and keys, and then I just sort of program the grooves in, and I, and I usually get I on this album I got uh, Alan Hurts on drums and. Uh, and I kind of split it up between Alan Hurst and uh, Gordon Campbell. And Gordon is just a you know a great drummer. Over the course of our conversation, Bill shared with me a, a lot of the uh, insights and observations that he's been able to make in, in regards to changes of the industry over his career. Um, radio stations that have changed format, record labels who no longer develop a bench of new talent. And then, of course, there's the move to digital streaming. I don't know how it happened, but somehow... The ownership of everything is out of the hands of musicians and into the hands of either lawyers or managers or agents or I'm not sure who it is. But, you know, and, and we, you know, we could go on and on about Spotify forever and, uh, and Pandora and all the other kind of things. And, uh, you know, my wife's got Spotify. I, I just refuse to do it. That's just I, I just don't want to throw any more money at those guys. Record companies are making as much now as they've ever made. But record companies used to have a bench. They used to, you know, while their while their main artist was up there selling a bunch of records and touring and making a lot of noise, and they're all real happy about it, they're developing other bands so that when that first band starts to go away, there's somebody right in the in the in the pipeline ready to go. You know, there's somebody they can put their their energy behind. None of that's going on anymore. It's all to make it, you know, I mean, labels, I think, are one, one, you know, one artist per demographic. That's it. 
So there you go. That's that's really a summary of my conversation with uh, Bill Champlin. But it, here's here's the thought that I want to leave you with. You see, the artists that we grew up listening to, the artists that we have so many of our memories from our life experiences attached to, many of them are still putting out music. They're putting out great music, but the, the push isn't there anymore. So what do we do as fans and as music lovers to continue to show the support? Well, first off, maybe we need to, to look for it. But after that, maybe we go grassroots and we help spread the word. When the band comes to town, we buy the ticket to see the show. And maybe instead of just streaming the music, we buy the album. And we do what we can to put the money and the, uh, the control back into the hands of the artists that we love. 